Welcome to Harmony Talk, a podcast about dreamers and doers, brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business, started in 1920. And I'm your host, Lisa Shampo. Happy New Year's to all. Let's hope our dreamers and doers make 2022 a good year. Today, our guest is Christine French-Cully, the Chief Purpose Officer and Editor-in-Chief of Highlights for Children, a well-known and long-running children's book publishing company. If Chris dreamed of reaching children of all ages around the globe, she has certainly succeeded. Under her leadership, the magazine that brought us Hidden Pictures and Goofus and Gallant is so much more. She launched three additional titles, Highlights High Five and High Five Bilingue for preschoolers and Highlights Hello for babies and toddlers. Chris also oversaw the editorial teams that produced seven continuity book clubs, clubs that send you themed books each month, as well as Highlights branded books, several digital apps, and two podcasts, one for children and one for grown-ups. She's been busy. Her most recent endeavor is Dear Highlights, a book of letters and poems and drawings from kids to highlights over 75 years, spanning everything from the assassination of JFK to the coronavirus, from bullying to the LGBTQ movement. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm delighted to be here. And congratulations. I understand you became a grandmother for the first time this month. Oh my gosh, yes. January 2nd, New Year's baby. We are thrilled. Congratulations. That's wonderful. We're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Dear Highlights, what adults can learn from 75 years of letters and conversations with kids. But first, a little background about you, Chris. Now, you're from the Midwest, and you joined Highlights in 1994. How did you come to be a children's book editor and advocate? I am one of the few people in the world who has had a career that is the career that she wanted from the time she was a child. I mean, I have been fortunate enough to live my childhood dream. I was always a voracious reader as a child, and there's lots of family stories about my wanting books when I was two, three, as young as that. And my parents, they were really supportive of that. I think they didn't really know a lot about parenting. My mother's mother died when she was five. My father had some pretty strict parents, but they had a lot of common sense and a lot of good instincts, and they were wonderful. And so they just filled our house with books and children's magazines and encouraged me in all of those kinds of things, the reading and the writing that I loved. And I have this very clear memory of being probably eight or nine, maybe I was a little older, of reading my favorite children's magazine that had come in the mail. And it was not Highlights, sorry, Highlights. <laughs> it was a magazine called Calling All Girls. And one day I stumbled upon the masthead. And there I saw the name of the editor and her name was Ruby something. And I had this epiphany and I thought, oh my gosh, this is somebody's job to pull together the material that goes in this magazine that I love so much every month, and I want to do that someday. And I never really looked back. I'm sorry, I've never heard of that magazine. I apologize. Well, you know, you might have, because after it was Calling on Girls, it became Young Miss, and then it became YM. You know, it just rebranded itself. Probably maybe your daughter read YM as a girl. Possibly. But it takes something special to write children's books, I think, or children's magazines. What's key to writing for children as opposed to adults? I mean, outside of the obvious sex and violence and things of that nature. You know, I think it's, well, I'm biased, but I think it's harder to write for children than it is for adults because adults, if they really want the information, they will tolerate some stodgy writing. They will allow you to take them down a wandering path before you get to your point, and kids will not. 
And so I think writing for children takes possibly more skill, but definitely a different kind of skill. You have to make every single word count. You have to be authentic and you have to understand your reader. You know, they want the good stuff. And so we have to give them the good stuff if we want to be read as children's writers. At Highlights, you are the chief purpose officer. What exactly is that? What does that mean? You know, that's a new role, and I assumed that title a couple years ago. My role as chief purpose officer is still evolving because we've never had one technically at Highlights, although we have always believed that everybody is responsible for perpetuating our mission, embracing our mission, and understanding why we exist. But in my role as chief purpose officer, I am charged with helping to deepen the understanding of our mission among employees. So I do some onboarding of executives and talking about what we call our meaningful story, our core beliefs, why we do what we do. And I also actually work with our marketers and folks in our creative department, helping them explain the benefits of our products in a way that will resonate with today's parents. And then I'm responsible for amplifying the brand externally. So I talk to a lot of external partners. I work with potential partners on impact partnerships, the kind of partnerships that don't really have so much to do with revenue, but rather reaching kids and families who might otherwise not have a highlights experience. I do some writing, more writing, blogging, thought leadership, posts on social media. It's an honor and a privilege, and I'm so fortunate that I'm allowed the opportunity to do that because my personal ethos is a really good fit with what Highlights does, which is helping kids become their best selves, curious, creative, caring, and confident. Could you say in a few words just what the mission is then? It sounds like that might be it, becoming their best selves. Yeah. Our purpose, of course, is to create products and experiences that help kids experience joyful learning. We talk about a lot what we call the four C's, and that is helping kids become their best selves. We think if we can teach kids at an early age some core beliefs, if we can instill in them the ideas that every person is deserving of dignity and respect, and if we work hard and try our best, we can show ourselves and others that we're capable of doing great things. If we teach kids that kindness is never wasted, the world is bigger than you and me, and we all have a part to play in making it fair and just. We have a set of core beliefs like that, and we think if kids learn those things at early ages, they will become their best selves, people who will make the world a better place. And the shorthand for all of that is what we call the four C's, curious, creative, caring, and confident. Well, your founders, Gary Cleveland Myers and his wife, Caroline Clark Myers, I think they did see highlights as occupying a very unique place in children's literature. Would you agree? And how would you describe that place? Oh, absolutely. We were founded by two lifelong educators. And between the two of them, they taught at every grade level from early childhood through adult. And they were really at the forefront of the parenting movement back in the day. They were people ahead of their times. In fact, someday I'd like to write about Mrs. Myers. We think she was the first woman civilian who was ever employed by the U.S. military because her husband was a captain in World War I, and he observed that there were soldiers there who couldn't read their letters from home. He convinced the Army to hire his wife, and together they created a literacy program to help the soldiers read their letters, which I just love that story. That's wonderful. I never heard that story before. They also were great observers and respecters of children. Dr. Myers was a child psychologist back when that field was kind of new, and Mrs. Myers had taught at a one-room schoolhouse near Honesdale, um, Boyd's Mills. And 
they had developed a set of beliefs about kids that were probably a little bit cutting edge at that time. They believed that kids were capable of thinking and reasoning at a much earlier age and a deeper level than was commonly thought then. They believed that children learned best by positive example. They believed that kids learned best when the learning was made fun. And they believed that parents should lean in and listen to their children, encourage them to share their thoughts and feelings become appreciative listeners of everything their children had to say. And, you know, back in the 40s, when the notion of that idea that children should be seen and not heard was still kind of in play, those were pretty revolutionary thoughts about kids. I think you are segueing absolutely perfectly into Dear Highlights' 75 Years of Letters. Now, I understand that Highlights actually answered every single letter they received over the years, but one out of every 10 was archived at Ohio State University. And out of that archival collection, you compiled the letters for Dear Highlights. Yes. Over our 75-year history, we have a pretty good estimate of how many pieces of correspondence we've received from kids. And we know that it exceeds to 2.5 million. And that includes letters and poems, our drawings and poems from kids, and also letters. And it has been a long held highlights tradition, really from our beginning, to respond to every piece of mail we get from children. And the founders themselves did it for a while, until that number became so great that they couldn't handle it themselves. And they sort of hand-selected editors whom they felt were worthy of the honor of answering a letter from kids. They felt that if a kid did you the honor of writing to you, then they deserve to be responded to in kind. So that has been a long-held practice. We continue it today. And at some point, I think in the early 1980s, we recognized that this was kind of interesting to have decades of letters from children, and researchers might be interested in seeing these letters and learning maybe how childhood has changed or not changed. So we contacted the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and Library of Rare Books and Manuscripts was interested in our collection of letters. We hadn't started saving them all until the early 80s, so we have some from the earlier decades, but not all of them. But after the 1980, we started saving everything, and we sent boxes and boxes to Ohio State, and we did take one out of every 10 drawings and poems kids have sent us and sent those for their archives as well. There just was more than they could handle, frankly. It's a lot. <laughs> I believe it. Thousands and thousands of letters, and just to be able to pull some out for this book must have been an amazing task. Children write about everything from JFK's assassination to being bullied to being transgender to parents who drink and gamble to COVID and even the recent wildfires. I thought that I would play some of them, and beginning with this one from a girl named Heidi. Dear Highlights, my world is turning upside down. There are tons of fires. I have a tortoise who lives outside with all the smoke. I'm afraid I'll move to Michigan with my family and would be taken away from my BFF, which has already happened, and that scared me. I'm afraid our house will catch fire and don't know how I'd fit all my stuffies, and I have a very tight school schedule. Ah, please help me. I've barely been able to sleep for weeks. I hate 2020. Worst year of my life. My tummy's twisting and turning all day. Heidi, age 10, 2020. Dear Heidi... We're very sorry that so many worries are weighing on you. Please know that you aren't alone. This year has been a difficult one, especially because we're dealing with so many stressful things at once. Try to be kind to yourself. 
What that means is to take good care of your mind and body. Well, it's obvious that letter is from a child. And the voices, of course, are actors. But the letters like this one are so very, very candid. You say of the letters, you and your team were rarely surprised, but often touched. Can you explain that? These kids write to us as if we are a dear, trusted friend. And if you think about it, it takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery to write to someone you really don't know and share your innermost thoughts and feelings. We say it's an honor and a sacred trust, and we try to treat it that way. And over the years, you know, when we say we're rarely surprised, we feel like we've seen a lot. And one of the big, I wouldn't even say that was a surprise, but we confirmed our suspicion that the world has changed a lot, but childhood has not changed that much. The way kids grow and develop is very much the same as it's always been. So there aren't a lot of surprises. Kids still write to us about the same basic concerns. Sometimes the trappings are a little different. But the basic things that kids worry about, the growth tasks they have to go through, the things they have to navigate is very much the same as it's always been. So there aren't a lot of surprises, but we are often touched. Well, I think that this book is very nicely organized into sections dealing with some of those subjects you just talked about, family, friends, school, feelings social concerns, biases, and the last chapter, really hard things. And some of these are truly hard to hear. Let's listen to just a few of those. Dear Highlights, my dad drinks too much. I have talked to the school counselor. She said I should try to get him into a clinic that helps people who have a drinking problem, but I couldn't get him in there if I had to. What do I do? MS, 1992. Dear Highlights, there's a girl at my school who's very strange. Everybody picks on her, and I learned that her parents died. She cuts herself and talks about how she doesn't belong on Earth. I think she's going to commit suicide, and I'm scared to talk to her. I already talked to adults and my friends. It didn't help. I'm embarrassed to admit that I don't want to be her friend, just a guide through tough times, and I'm scared for her. I witnessed some of her bullying, and she knows I'm there. She hates me already, and she doesn't even know my name. I'm petrified and don't know what to do. How can I help her? Write back so fast your thumbs bleed, please. Kate, 2013. Dear Highlights, being 12, I just hit puberty. I'm starting to get feelings for people. The problem is, I have a crush on a girl in my class, but I'm also a girl. Only few people know I'm bi, but I want to tell her, but it's so stressful. What if she doesn't want to be my friend afterwards? I'm scared I'll be judged by my fellow classmates. My teacher and my mom already know. Please help, Mackenzie, age 12, 2019. Pretty powerful letters. In most instances, including these, you advise the children to seek out a helpful adult. So let's talk about those advice givers. Who exactly are they that you worked with on this book? You say the advisors had to evolve with the culture over the years. That has changed the way they talk to children about the issues in their lives in the last 75 years. Could you elaborate? Well, we have a staff of specially trained editors who help us answer all this mail. Most of the mail we receive are about everyday universal problems of childhood. The three top subjects kids write to us about are school, family, and friends. But we do get a significant amount of mail about more serious problems. So we have a cadre of credentialed professionals 
who graciously help us draft our replies to some of these letters that are difficult, the letters that have serious consequences or the really hard things, as we sometimes call them. When those letters come and emails come in, we tag them, we flag them, and we make sure that we get a response out in 24 hours. So we do have some language that you know has been previously vetted with professionals, some language that has been approved by people who work with kids who are dealing with these difficult situations. But there's a little bit of a template to our answers, and I use that in not a very rigid way. But what we tell editors who answer these letters, because often they're nervous about it, they feel the responsibility, it weighs heavily on us all. But we say, first of all, you want to make sure that the child knows they're heard. And that's the most important thing. Sometimes that's really all a letter writer wants. They want somebody to listen to them and they want to know they were heard. So we always repeat back to them what they've said to us so they know that we've heard it and we've read it. Then we try to validate and normalize their feelings. Sometimes we can say, you know, lots of kids write to us about this problem. Or we can say, we've heard this before. Some of us even experience the emotions and the feelings that you're experiencing right now. Then we try to reassure them and let them know that there are things that can be done to help remedy the situation. And we give them a variety of approaches that they might take in thinking about their situation. We never offer one solution. We want to empower kids. We want them to feel confident and know that they have agency and they can use it. And we always, always, always urge them to find a trusted adult in their circle, somebody who cares about them that they trust. It might be a parent, might be a teacher, a school nurse, parent of a friend, favorite aunt or uncle, find somebody to talk to about this problem because we never have enough information in a letter to fully understand the situation. We just don't have enough context. So we hope that kids will take that advice. Have you ever heard back? We have on occasion heard back. In the book, we talk a little bit about that in the last chapter. We never really know what happens, but on occasion, kids will write us back and thank us. And often there's a happy ending. And sometimes they say, that didn't work. What else you got? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know you did hear back for years and years and years from one person in particular until I think he was actually in his 20s or something. But I was just wondering if any of the, the hard issues you heard back from some of the ones, for example, that we just mentioned. Yeah, we have. And, and actually, one of my favorite stories about that is in the book. I talk about it in the book. We received a letter from a child who thanked us for help that we never actually gave. She had written to us a letter and confided in us that she would have been molested, and she was afraid to tell her parents. And she wrote this letter, sealed it up in an envelope, gave it to her mother, and asked her mother to mail it to Highlights. And her mother's intuition kicked in, and she read the letter before she mailed it. So it never got to us, but her mother took appropriate action. Years later, this young girl wrote to us and thanked us for that because she said if you know if she hadn't felt like we were a trusted source for her, if she hadn't realized she could come to us, maybe never would have told her mother. That is a wonderful story. I hope that she did get the help that she needs. So are there other letters, though, that particularly moved you, letters you actually received that you can remember? Yeah. I'm often moved by the letters we get from parents who often don't realize that their children have written to us. The kids do it without telling them, or they mail the letter without reading it first. Kids expect to be responded to. They don't seem surprised when they receive a reply, but their parents are often gobsmacked 
they don't think we're going to answer their children's letter. There's an art to answering a kid's letter. If it's about a really hard thing that involves the parent, you have to be careful. We don't want to say anything that might exacerbate the situation at home for the child. But we do hope, for the most part, that other eyes see the letter besides the child's eyes. We hope parents will read it because parents then can learn something about their child they didn't know before. Maybe they didn't understand how deeply their child felt about an issue. We had a heart-wrenching letter from, I thought it was heart-wrenching, from a father who couldn't get over how empathetically we responded to his child who wrote because she was so distressed over the death of their cat. It had been months and he thought she was over it. She wasn't. And he was so grateful to us. And so the whole family had another conversation about grief and about how they can move ahead without the death. That's become your siblings and your children. I always say that it's kind of a win-win-win. It's a win for the kids who, of course, get good advice. They feel validated. They feel heard. It's a win for parents who often learn something about their child, or maybe they pick up a good parenting tip from our response. They think they see a different way to approach a problem they hadn't thought about before. And it's a win for us at Highlights because we know that this ongoing dialogue with children over the years has beautifully informed our work and it has deepened our understanding of children in ways that really nothing else can. When we talk about things that have evolved, when you're in that book, you did talk about children used email or children no longer live in two-parent homes, and that has been different for the advice givers. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, we have had to keep up with the times a little bit, and on a regular basis, we review our responses and make sure that we're doing things in the best possible way and the way that's most helpful to modern families. You know, the advice on how to handle a bully has changed over the years. So we're frequently checking in with bullying experts to make sure that we're giving advice that seems to make the most sense. I almost want to ask for that advice here, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's a problem that hasn't gone away. That's sort of one surprise to me when we were in the archives and we were looking at all these letters from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. In some cases, it was a little discouraging to see that kids were writing us about some of the same issues. In the 60s and the 70s and the 2000s, we still had letters from young girls who wondered if if a career aspiration they had was okay for a girl. We were saying in the 70s, yes, it's perfectly fine for a girl to want to be a veterinarian or for a boy who might want to learn how to knit. And we're still saying it today from time to time. Well, I talked about how it's evolved in terms of like addressing children who live in perhaps two parents of the same gender or a single parent household. Oh, yes, yes. Family makeup has changed significantly. I mean, it has been a long time since the two-parent family, original marriage, those families, it has been a long time since that's been the norm. And we were a little slow, we noticed in our responses, to move from saying, talk to your parents about that. Now, of course, we are careful about saying, ask a parent or another trusted adult. We know that many of our readers are being raised by their grandparents these days. And we don't make assumptions about, you know, the gender of their parents or their marital status. I mean, sometimes somebody may be co-parenting a reader and they're not actually married. Just family makeup has changed. And we want kids to know that whatever your family makeup is, your family is special and important. So of course, no judgment. What expectations did you have for the book in terms of the readership? Did you expect it to be read by parents, teachers, children, all of the above? Or was it geared for anybody in particular? 
this is our first book for adults. And so we probably saw parents as our primary audience, but we also know that grandparents have been very interested in the book. There's lots of valuable information and insights in there for educators, I believe. And I've even heard from a few kids, older kids, who've read it and enjoyed it. We didn't intend for it to be a book for children, but some 12 and 13-year-olds I know have read it and have expressed some appreciation. Well, that's good to hear. The New York Times recently ran an article about children in crisis in 2022. The article stated children are falling so far behind in school, one expert was quoted as saying, we haven't seen this kind of academic achievement crisis in living memory. Do you think highlights can have a helpful role in this crisis? Oh, I do. I absolutely do. Not only do we have a whole line of learning products designed to help kids in early childhood practice some of those essential skills, and they're so easy for parents to use at home, but I think what we are almost more concerned about than the academic, the loss of progress there, we're more concerned about the social-emotional learning of kids. Because all of this isolation, quarantining, Zoom classrooms, that has taken a toll on kids' social-emotional development. And we are all about that. It highlights all of our products are about helping kids figure out who they are, feel a sense of belonging, understand how to better relate to others with empathy and kindness. So I think parents choosing the right reading material for their children and the right supplemental material that they use at home to help bolster their kids and fill some of those gaps that have opened up as a result of the pandemic, that's really important for parents to choose the right things. Well, one of the things you did say in the book, speaking of the pandemic, of course, is that this was the first time that Highlights encountered experiencing the same issues as their readers around the globe. And I would just like to just play a couple of very short coronavirus letters, just so you can hear what some of the kids say. And they're not all negative. No, their hope and optimism was encouraging, inspiring. I love the first one here. Coronavirus, always something to do. Even though if the whole world is shut down and being home is boring, there is always something to do. Read a book, do the dishes, and if you live on a farm, milk cows or feed calves. I do. Corbin, age 9, 2020. Dear Highlights, I need an honest answer. Are we going to go back to school before the end of the year? I am 11 and really want to finish fifth grade. Can you give me an honest answer, please? Anonymous, 2020. Dear Highlights, all this talk about the coronavirus is scaring me. I'm worried that I won't go to school next year. What is this stuff really about? Chloe, 2020. Dear Highlights, so when the president said that we had to stay home, I got to face talk my friend Owen again and again. Does this mean we have to stay home forever? Andrew, 2020. Dear Andrew, thank you for your message. You aren't alone. Many kids wonder how long they will have to stay home because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Although we have to stay home for now, it won't be forever. But we don't know how long it will be. No one has all the answers right now. You know, the subtitle of your book is What Adults Can Learn from This Book. And I think it's kind of clear after this podcast, but maybe you can explain in a few words what adults can learn from this book. I think as adults, we tend to think that we remember what childhood was like, but our memories are blurry or spotty. And we tend to think of it as this idyllic, carefree time of life, you know, and, and even at highlights, we talk about it as being a short, sweet season, which it is, but it is a period of heavy, heavy lifting for kids. And your selection of letters today shows that kids are dealing with some big stuff. 
in childhood. And so our hope is that people will read this book and be reminded of that and lean in and listen, lean in and listen to everything your kids want to tell you, no matter how small or seemingly inconsequential to you, it is important to them in that moment. And if we lean in and listen to everything kids want to tell us, all the small stuff, then they're going to come to us and talk to us about the big stuff. They're going to need to do that later. So yeah, our hope is that this book will sort of spark a movement and parents will strengthen the communication with their kids and lean in and listen. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This book is a wonderful addition to the Library of Children's and Adults Literature. Where can we get the book, by the way? It's available wherever books are sold or on highlights.com. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being with us. This podcast was brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business, started in 1920. There are lots of great poems in this book, but I'm going to leave the audience with one. It's called Magic Wand. Talk to you next time. If I had a magic wand, if I had a magic wand, I would make everybody nicer. I would make the poor have some more money, make people who are sad happy, make people who are sick healthy, make people who are crying laugh, make the wars stop so there is peace in the world. If I had a magic wand, Everyone would be friends, and no one would be afraid of people who are different. Carl, age 8, 2000.